You're listening to Season 6 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam, for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans. We analyze all 42 years of Gundam, episode by episode and movie by movie, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world, from 1979 to today. This is episode 6.1, The Rolling Podcast Affair, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, and although I am a lifelong Gundam fan, much of what we'll be covering this season will be new to me. And I'm Nina, new to this run of SD Gundam and excited for whatever surprises season 6 has in store. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 604 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks to our newest supporters, Yaji Black, Phobos2390, John T, Anthony R, Josh M, and Curtis H. This podcast would not be possible without you. And a very special thank you to Zach N for sending us two books from our wish list. Thanks for joining us for what I can promise you will definitely be the weirdest season of the podcast so far. Over the next few months, we are going to be covering some 23 episodes, or roughly 270 minutes, of SD Gundam content. These run the gamut from one-off gag reels less than three minutes long to the nearly two-hour-long SD Gundam Gaiden miniseries. It's all silly and absurd, periodically gross, and occasionally funny. It's hard to find, having never been officially translated and released in English, although there have been a few fan translations over the years. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, while I have previously watched some of the SD shorts, a lot of this season is going to be totally new to me. So, we'll be discovering it together. This season also poses some structural challenges because of the way the SD shorts were released. Most of the episodes were released in sets of two, three, even six episodes per set. Sometimes the different parts of a single set relate to each other, but more often than not, they don't. That makes it hard to decide how much to try to cover in a single episode of the podcast. We'll be playing it by ear this season, combining where we can and dividing when necessary. As usual, we'll end the episode by telling you what's on the docket for the next week, so you can watch ahead if you like. And there will be a few other changes to our regular format as well. If you take a look at the watch list we have on our website, you'll see that the first two SD projects we'll cover, SD Gundam Mark II and SD Gundam's Counterattack, have release dates that overlap with War in the Pocket release dates. The last episode of War in the Pocket came out in August of 1989, while SD Gundam Mark II came out the previous June, and SD Gundam's counterattack came out that July. For that reason, I won't be giving my usual beginning-of-the-season roundup of contemporary world events. That will come later, once we get past the history I covered last season. It will be a short update, covering only about a year. The nature of SD Gundam also means there isn't much need to recap the events of the Universal Century, SD Gundam may play off of previous Gundam series characters and events, 
but plays fast and loose with concepts like continuity and canon, many times abandoning them altogether. Based on the previous SD shorts, I do not expect any kind of continuous storyline, but there will still be plenty to talk about. Gags and wordplay, references to film and TV, production staff, and the massive popularity of SD shorts and toys. If there's one thing we can count on, it's plenty of strong feelings as we dive into season six of Mobile Suit Breakdown and discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly in this late 1980s and early 90s run of SD Gundam. This week we are covering Mobile Suit SD Gundam Mark II Part 1, Korogaru Koroni Jiken, or The Rolling Colony Affair. This episode was written and directed by Amino Tetsuro. His only previous Gundam experience was as a storyboard artist for episode 11 of Zeta Gundam. He had, by this point, also done storyboards for Dirty Pair and City Hunter, and had just finished up a stint as overall director on the six-episode Starship Troopers OVA in 1988. The animation director and character designer was mangaka and animator Sato Gen, who had previously animated for the third of the first Gundam compilation movies. The music was by Kenji Kawai, who had done the music for the All That Gundam short just a few months previous. And now, here's Nina with the recap. The cartoon opens on a space colony cabaret club, the Shuraku, as masses of Gundam characters and mobile suits stream in to watch the evening's show. Siroko, unrecognized by the other characters and too poor to afford a ticket, tries to wheedle his way in but doesn't have any luck. Inside, the audience is restive, but before long the show begins, as a line of ghostly beauties, all of them women and girl characters who died in the course of First Gundam, Zeta, Double Zeta, and Char's counterattack, parade onto the stage, singing and dancing. Then they process off the stage and down the aisles. The Double Zeta breaks one of the venue's cardinal rules, grabbing hold of Pudu when she floats by. In response, the Masala shoots a rocket at the offending mobile suit, propelling it backwards into the wall, where it crashes with a huge explosion. The Gundam, vibrating with energy after Lala kissed it, takes off like a tensed rubber band that's been released, bouncing back and forth between the floor and the ceiling until it punches through the exterior of the colony. Most of the audience are sucked out into space. The Double Zeta and the Misala continue their fight, which takes an odd turn, and the colony begins to spin and move towards Earth. Siroko, Shar, and Amuro fall to Earth just beforehand and manage to catch the colony, but they can only hold it for so long. They are forced to run away as it begins to tumble end over end after them, seemingly chasing them all around the globe, before it crashes into the Statue of Liberty and spins back into space. At least in the Gundam fan circles that I run in, this is one of the better known and more frequently discussed of the SD shorts, though admittedly, it's not much of a competition. I think the reasons why it's better known and more often watched uh, are probably because it's pretty early in the SD run, uh, and because there's a lot of 
questionable content in it. Yeah, I'll get into this more when I do the research piece on the director, but one of the things he liked about working on SDs was what he described as the sort of like madcap, reckless, gag after gag after gag nature of it, but in a sense that he thought and he had the impression audiences found these to be very funny <laughs> when they came out. And uh, that is, for the most part, not our <laughs> reaction. Yeah, yeah. Um, for all of the off-color jokes, um, for all of the more questionable decisions that were made, it kind of fails the ultimate litmus test for comedy. It's not particularly funny. Um, there are a couple of good moments. Woody Des uh, <laughs> <laughs> remains the funniest thing to come out of SD so far and is just like, in this episode, it comes really close to the end after we've sort of been tortured with all of these, like, let's call them jokes, let's be generous. Um, and then we get <laughs> this cutaway to Woody and it's revealed that the whole thing is being broadcast to a kind of like game show uh, with a bunch of the other characters and Woody is the host and it's great. It's a huge relief moment. Oh, yes. Despite all of that, still, he's Woody. Not to mention the shock of hearing him have a line that isn't simply woody this, <laughs> But delivered in that same kind of like slow, almost monotone voice. It's, yeah, that's a truly great moment. The best one in this episode. Yeah, the, uh, first half or so of this one is pretty gross. I don't know much about Japanese strip clubs beyond how they're portrayed in some episodes of the show Midnight Diner, uh, but this venue is much more of a theater or cabaret than a strip club. There's no tables, no beverage service. I looked into the kanji for shuraku. It doesn't seem to be a word on its own, but shu can mean grace, charm, refinement, elegance, and that raku can mean music, comfort, ease, relaxation. It's a good name for a venue, refinement and relaxation. There was a magazine in the 80s, like a glossy photo magazine with lots of pictures of beautiful women in various states of undress um, looking sensuously at the camera called Shagaku. And it uses, for gaku, it uses the kanji that's raku in shuraku. I think that might be the reference they're making there. And then out of curiosity, there's the display outside with headshots and some text. And I translated what bits of text I could. Uh, first, there's goka, which means extravagant, lavish, opulent, luxurious, gorgeous. Uh, then there's katakana for all-star, followed by a two-kanji word, uh, which is almost certainly shutsuen. It's a little hard to read, but shutsuen would mean a performance or an appearance. So it's an all-star performance, which, given that it is all of the favorite waifus, I guess... We should say favorite dead waifus of Gundam. Makes sense. Yeah. Then there is Kenran, which means gorgeous, brilliant, dazzling, flowery, etc. Uh, I actually found the fact that all the dancing girls were ghosts to be one of the few funny parts of all of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And this is separate from the just like casual sexism of having all the women line up to be ogled by a predominantly male audience in the show and presumably in the real world too. 
It's just that that kind of sexism is nothing new for Gundam. Back at the start of Season 3, I know we talked about a segment in Prelude to Double Zeta that was just a succession of Gundam girls in glamour shots. But the decision to have the dancers in the cabaret all be ghosts gives it a darkly absurd edge that Rolling Colony Affair desperately needs. It's one of the few moments where it feels like they're making fun of themselves, like they're making fun of the Gundam series, uh, and it works. I would like to point out one character who is dead does not appear as a ghost, and that's Kaecilia. Kaecilia gets sucked out of the colony along with other members of the audience. And I wondered if she was just not waifu enough to be included in the show. I mean, can you imagine Cassilia dancing up on stage with a little ghost tail like Casper? Bopin, bopin. <laughs> no, I cannot. Bopin, oofun, bopin, Um, Yeah, so I think that just, she didn't, she didn't fit. And then uh, the scene deals explicitly with the fact that a lot of people were sexually attracted to Purdue. Yeah. Uh, and calls it out as Lolicon, but clearly finds that more funny than disturbing. Yes. Like, it's it's a little finger wag, like, oh, you naughty Lolicons. It's a, yeah, a little, like, ribbing uh, nudge with the elbow. Ha <laughs> Yeah. Well, and, um, of course, Puru is naked the whole time. Out of all the cabaret girls who are dressed, Puru is just always naked. And it's a Puru fan who breaks the rules and grabs a performer. Yeah, this is a joke that is, one, not funny, and two, they haven't earned it. The joke, such as it is, boils down to, haha, isn't it so funny that a bunch of our fans are lusting after this 11-year-old girl? What a crazy random coincidence that has nothing to do with us, the creators, at all. Lamau. Lol. It's the meme of the guy saying, we're all looking for whoever is responsible for this. Who keeps drawing her naked? Who indeed, Sunrise? I will say this, though. The focus on Puru sure does distract from all of the other teenagers on that stage. I... Big heavy sighs about this. A lot of it is very reminiscent of Looney Tunes and that era of slapstick comedy and cartoons. And a lot of the off-color jokes are reminiscent. Mm -hmm. The whole jaw on the floor, bouncing off the walls stuff. I feel like I've seen those yeah, gags before. Yeah. All we're missing is somebody going, Auga! Some wolf whistles. And of course, this is a big problem in comedy. A lot of comedy doesn't age well, um, especially off-color stuff. You know, social expectations change dramatically over time and things that were on the edge and therefore sort of pushing it and derived their humor from that end up becoming either extremely banal and boring or else off the table completely. And I feel like that's kind of what's happened here. Uh, these shorts have a pretty close relationship to a SD manga that was coming out at the same time. Um, the manga was done by Sato Gen, and he was also the character designer for these SD shorts. And they took a lot of inspiration from his work other than that. And uh, he's mentioned on Twitter that those old manga have had to be corrected more than a dozen times <laughs> because of what he described as like discriminatory statements or jokes that were made in them. 
So this is not just our perspective as like the people that we are and in our context, this is like a generally agreed upon thing that uh, there are some issues with these old SD shorts. And then finally, we have the uh, masochistic double Zeta. Oh my God. Yeah, the fight between the Masala and the double Zeta very quickly takes on like a BDSM kind of tone. Yeah. I'm torturing you. Oh, but I like it. It feels so good. Oh, Kimochi. (laughs) Yeah. Which I guess just from my perspective feels kind of out of place in a cartoon that seems to be directed at fairly young viewers and it's kind of like slapstickness. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's meant for more mature viewers. (laughs) I mean, who is this for is a question we could continuously ask. The sexual stuff isn't the only category of gag that didn't always land for me. Some of the stuff with Sirocco didn't work. Like, it's a bit funny seeing Sirocco as a character on the outs and nobody knows who he is and he doesn't have any power. This is something you pointed out as we were wrapping up Zeta. Like, when you look back on what happened, will anyone even remember Sirocco? Right. It just... um. I don't know, jokes about people being poor don't sit great with, with me. Yeah. Uh, I feel like it's also kind of a joke about his unpopularity among the fans, mm. which is a thing that still gets joked about today. I mean, even in the first uh, round of SDs, they established all the jokes about his name and how difficult it was for a lot of the fan community in Japan to like say or remember his name and it was constantly getting mixed up with words like shiropo for syrup or toroko for truck. I did look into this exchange that he has with Char because I I thought maybe it was a reference to an idiom or something because he goes from cleaning the windshield to being told off to brushing his teeth. Uh, Char tells Soroko not to clean his windshield without permission. But the, the way that he says it, windshield is not explicitly stated, it's just implied. It's like, don't clean, you know, without my permission. And Sirocco switches to cleaning something else. And the, the word for polishing a windshield and cleaning your teeth is the same Japanese verb. It's migaku. <laughs> so it's like, oh, you don't want me to migaku this? I'll migaku something else. <laughs> I don't think there's anything more to it than that. As I understand it, a lot of the content of this short basically came from the director, Amino, getting the whole staff together in a room and just like riffing for a while, just like making jokes about Gundam and then taking those ideas and and writing a script based on them. And so it's, yeah, kind of about what you would expect to come out of that process. It feels like the late 80s anime OVA equivalent of like a podcast of four friends just getting together and telling jokes. In that same interview that you got that from, he also mentions that most of the jokes in SD Gundam are incomprehensible. They're (laughs) silly or weird, and they're not necessarily thought through. It's just like, oh, we thought this would be funny. (laughs) So while our impulse is definitely to look for additional detail in all of these things, a lot of times that's not going to pay off with the SDs. There's nothing there to find. Oh, not that we won't do our best. Um, but yeah, it's like if you if you were making a stew and you put all the Gundam ingredients into the stew and you cooked it and you cooked it and you cooked it and then you just scraped off whatever froth was on top and you made a show out of that. You're making a 
horrible face over there. Well, you just made it sound super unpleasant. (laughs) Well, I don't think it's as bad as all that. But yeah, it's kind of absurd and off the wall and improvisational almost. An example of one of the things that I looked into and couldn't find anything on was after Shiroko loses the coin that Char gives him, he goes into a bit of a panic. He freaks out. And at one point during his freak out, he appears to be bathing inside of his crate. And in English, to take a bath on something can be a euphemism for losing a lot of money. And I wondered if maybe there was something like that or a Japanese idiom to do with bathing that would be appropriate. I found two, neither of them work in this context. Apparently a crow's bath refers to an excessively short shower or bath. It's like, oh, you were not in there long enough. You took a crow's bath. And then the other, bathing in lukewarm water, supposedly means like someone who stays in a bath until the water is no longer hot. Someone spoiled and idle and indulged and complacent. But the only references to that idiom that I found anywhere were in articles about this Japanese streetwear company, a bathing ape. And that still doesn't quite fit. So I looked into this from a kind of a different angle. And when Soroko loses the coin, he goes goblin mode, right? He like screams and he grows some fangs and he gets all monstrous looking. It feels like spirit possession. Um, There is a kami of poverty, binbogami. And binbogami, when it inhabits your home, causes you to suffer all kinds of misfortune, including financial misfortune. And in Shinto, when you've been cursed or possessed, it's part of the sort of normal practice to engage in ritual cleansing as a way of exercising yourself. So in the show, Soroko loses the money, seems to be possessed by some kind of spirit, takes a bath, and then like banishes the demon from his body. So I think that's what he's doing there. I think this is also why he has the character B on his little truck box thing that he's riding around in. Um, Because I think it's B for Bishonen, which is what he is, a a beautiful man. B for Bean, which is a bottle, like the syrup that he's always selling. And then Bean, like Beanbo, impoverished, destitute. And sort of hammering that poverty home with the fact that he doesn't have a ship. He's getting around in a discarded, like, fruit crate. Which feels like the spaceship equivalent of wearing like a water barrel as clothing, which again is a very like Looney Tunes way of showing this character is poor. Going back to that question of who is this for, I feel like it's for people who by this point were adults, but as children had watched those old Looney Tunes, Hanna-Barbera style cartoons. So it's evoking that nostalgia, but also for an adult audience. Because again, these videotapes are expensive. And I don't know how much play those old cartoons were getting in Japan at this point. Probably not nearly as much, if any. This one also has a lot of film references, and quite a few of the films that it's referencing were not particularly recent (laughs) when this cartoon was made. The new Gundam, with its funnels wrapped around it like a cape, we thought was probably a Zorro reference. Especially with that music sting that plays when it appears. The trumpets. The stock music for when a 
Mexican or Latin American mysterious hero character appears suddenly. And the first Zorro film dates from 1920, The Mask of Zorro with Douglas Fairbanks. And there have been 40 movies and 10 TV series of Zorro uh, in the intervening years. And some of those like post-date this, but a lot of them predate it, and a lot of them would have been shown in Japan. I wish I knew if the, the voice and the acting referred to a specific role, either this voice actor's or someone else's, but I couldn't find anything definitive. This particular voice actor, Ebara Masashi, also voiced characters like Captain Hook and Robin Hood for Disney animated features, a character from Thunderbirds Argo, numerous characters in G.I. Joe and the Transformers, but he does such a very specific voice <laughs> for the new Gundam. It's not just a specific voice, but there's like a weird speech pattern. There's a lot of English uh, in it. When he laughs, he does hahi hu heho, which is like, when you're learning Japanese and you're learning the different syllables, that's the order that you learn a set of them in. There's, it's like a mnemonic. In English, when you list the vowels, you say A-E-I-O-U. In Japanese, if you're listing in the syllabulary, it's A-I-U-E-O. So, ha-hi-hu-he-ho. Kaki-ku-ke-ko. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when Shar and Amuro catch him with his hand stuck in the colony, the new Gundam first speaks in English. What? Something wrong? And then in the you, next bit... You do that voice so well. <laughs> and then in the next bit, uh, also has kind of an odd accent, but in Japanese, and I have no idea what that accent is. I don't know if it's just a funny voice or if it's a reference to a particular place or kind of character. With that very specific cape thing he does, with it wrapped around his face, with his, like chin in his elbow basically and then flourishing it open it feels like it has to be Zorro or to something else that was also referencing Zorro but the voices could be something else entirely even uh, and then towards the very end we have the spinning colony which turns into a bone that then falls to earth and Neanderthal versions of Sirocco, Shar, and Amaro fight over it is very 2001 a space odyssey although the way they fight feels like a three stooges thing and then the very ending shot with the statue of liberty half buried in the beach is planet of the apes both of those movies came out in 1968 hmm so yeah some pretty old references here speaking of the use of english it stood out to me that the opening and ending titles incorporated english text so in addition to some English lines in the show itself, the new Gundam also at one point says, oh my god, we have the rolling colony affair and the beginning. At the end. Right. The uh, Japanese text at the end there reads the dawn of humanity. So it's like we've gone back in time. We've reset the timeline. <laughs> <laughs> so really, the entirety of human history has just been an endless cycle of Shar and Amuro whacking each other with bones. And Sirocco is there too, but no one remembers him. When they do the cutaway with Woody, which again, best part of the episode, they do like a panel of Gundam characters. This is a pretty like standard talk show thing. They all predict what's going to happen. Um, the best hit by far, of course, is Camille going, everyone will die. Meow. 
In previous SD Gundam shorts, he has also ended statements in Nya. Do we know what this is about? Do we know why we have Catboy Camille? Um, kind of. So this goes back again to Sato again, um, who was the character designer for these characters. He gets asked this question a lot, it turns out, so much so that when he responds on Twitter, he now just copies and pastes his answer. <laughs> and his answer to this, and this is something that's really important to keep in mind for all of the SD that we watch, is that when he designed these characters, he had not seen Zeta, Double Zeta, or Char's counterattack. Wow. He has only seen First Gundam. He still hasn't seen any of those following shows. He designed these characters based on the setting art and like a couple of sentences of description that he overheard from people in the Sunrise offices. So for Camille, he had been told that Camille's enemy stole his brain and then his like mind became the universe. <laughs> like that's what he knew about Camille. Um, and he's given two different answers to the specific question of why does Camille end every sentence with nya, onomatopoeia for a cat meowing. And one answer was, there's really nothing there. He just looks kind of like a cat when his eyes are closed in the manga. So I had him say meow. But the other one is a little bit more interesting. And it's that he didn't know who the voice actor was or what Camille's speech patterns were like. And so he just kind of cheated by making him very weird so that no one would notice that it was wrong. The fact that he still has never watched any of those shows feels like such a power move. <laughs> yeah, people will at him and they'll be like, wow, your depictions of these characters are so different from the way they appear in the shows. <laughs> and he'll just say, are they? I don't know. I've never seen them. <laughs> oh, I um, love it. This version of Camille is referred to in the Japanese as Putsun Camille. Putsun is the onomatopoeia for like when a string that has been stretched really tight snaps. And it's also used for when a person has a mental breakdown and starts behaving erratically. So this is breakdown Camille. On that same note, the other one he's talked about a lot is Puru. Again, he hadn't seen Double Zeta. All he knew about Puru was that she was, quote, a girl who loves being naked and taking baths. Well, there you go. We should probably also mention that in addition to all of the mm, sex stuff and the lowly con jokes, there's also just some like casual low-key racism at the end, just like very culture essentialist stuff. Every country has exactly like one stereotypical thing about it. They go to India and it's the Taj Mahal and aesthetic meditating and some sacred cows. A way for them to accentuate that these dudes are being chased all over the world by a rolling colony and apparently can only run in a straight line directly away from it, <laughs> cannot get out of its path. And they do eventually destroy New York. Well, a little bit. Because you gotta destroy New York. I did enjoy that when the colony tumbles into the ocean off the coast of Japan, uh, I'm pretty sure it's meant to be Tokyo Harbor that they tip into when there's the mountain in the background. That's probably Mount Fuji a gog like bursts out of the water. I think it's a Zaku Mariner type. What? How dare you? <laughs> yeah, the uh, being chased all over the world portion of the show has more of that mobile suit style fan service that we uh, have commented on for previous SDs. 
It's not as prominent in this one. There's some in the intro part when everybody's showing up at the club. Then these scenes of various cities all have mobile suits incorporated into them. There's a mobile suit climbing the Eiffel Tower. There's a... Um, I'm not even going to attempt to guess what mobile suit, but it's a vaguely gun tank shaped one <laughs> next to the pyramid. Ah, that would be the Zaku tank. All right. Well, the Zaku tank is vaguely sphinx-like in its shape. Yeah. And I assume that's why they put it there. Uh, so they they incorporate all of these different fan service Only the hardcore fans will recognize these mobile suits moments into these city-by-city city scenes. Yeah. In the opening shot, when they do a pan across space to get us to Shiraku, there are a bunch of ships and stuff in the background drawn small so that only the hardest core and keenest eyed would spot them. And a bunch of them do not belong in space. I think most of them do not belong in space. There's a Medea, there's a Mad Angler submarine, there's a Gun Perry, there's a Gao. There was a recent debate on Twitter about some old merchandise art that depicted a gal in space. So here it's appeared in the animation. It is canon. I think the biggest challenge for us this season is going to be how many of these moments we assume must be referring to something. And then we spend hours researching and find like, oh, no, this was just one of those silly jokes that doesn't have anything more to it. It's going to be a lot of that. Meow. And now, Nina's research on Amino Tetsuro, the director for this short. Amino Tetsuro has had a busy career in anime, but there's not much information online about his personal life. Born in 1955 in Chiba Prefecture, he went on to attend high school in Tokyo. He worked for a couple of years before attending a vocational film school and entering the anime industry as a production assistant, possibly on Space Runaway Ideon. In the intervening years, he's had a number of different roles on anime productions, but has mostly worked as a storyboard artist and director. In the 80s and 90s, he was working at Studio Piero, Nippon Sunrise, and Ashi Productions. I won't list all of his early credits, but he did work on Zeta Gundam as a storyboard artist, as Tom mentioned, and direct an episode of Dirty Pair and several episodes of Urusei Yatsura. The most insight we find about him comes from a 2007 interview for Sunrise's SD Gundam webpage. The usual caveats about my Japanese language reading comprehension apply. <laughs> Since Amino would go on to direct a lot more SD Gundam, Marks 3 through 5, SD Gundam's Counterattack, SD Gundam Festival, SD Gundam Legend, the interview really looks at SD Gundam as a whole. And not only did he direct all of those, he also wrote the scripts, asked how he decided on the stories for the various SD projects. Amino explains that before scripting, they would have a team meeting where everyone could brainstorm jokes and gags to be incorporated into the story. He contends that prior to SD Gundam, Sunrise didn't do many gag-heavy anime, but it's a format he really enjoys and feels has a lot of personality. In fact, asked about which SD Gundam projects made the strongest impression on him, he mentions the role in Colony Affair first, particularly for its madcap pace and constant jokes. For Amino, making people laugh was one of the best parts of working on SD. 
He describes the SDs generally as chock full of incomprehensible gags, that this is part of the character of the series. Plus, it was a, quote, broad-minded time when they were given free reign by the studio to move decisively on their ideas, even the strange or seemingly off-track ones. In addition to their silliness, Amino really enjoyed the SD's voice acting and music. Asked about various production side difficulties, it seems that the schedules were quite grueling and frequently overlapped with each other or with other projects Amino was working on. The productions he calls out as memorably difficult are ones we haven't gotten to yet, so I will need to remember to revisit this later. I especially liked his answer when asked about the difficulty of animating chibi characters, specifically the two-head-tall ones. Since Amino went in already familiar with this style of character, he didn't feel any particular sense of unease about it. He points out that character builds in most anime and manga don't conform with actual human proportions, so making those adjustments was natural enough. To his mind, the most difficult aspect in designing and animating SD characters isn't their proportions per se, it's that they all have the same proportions. In most series, you wouldn't draw a young girl and a burly sumo wrestler with the same size bodies and same size faces. It's an offhand comment, but he also mentions the influence of Takamatsu Shinji, and that SD Gundam's team experimented with limited animation techniques. For a little bit of context, Takamatsu Shinji is an animator and animation director who has done a lot of work on Gundam up to this point, and going forward is going to be in charge of about half of the SD Gundam from this era, the half that Amino is not in charge of. In terms of final thoughts, Amino comments that although the SDs tend to get lumped together, SD isn't just one thing. There are the quote-unquote normal Gundam stories, the Kishi installments with their warrior characters, a veritable, as he puts it, variety pack of settings, stories, and characters. Amino is now in his late 60s and seems to still be working with a director credit on the 2020 anime series Iwakakeru Sport Climbing Girls and a 2020 storyboard artist credit for an episode of the TV series I'm Standing on a Million Lives. His variety pack comment bodes well for us. We should have plenty of new things to talk about every week, and whatever aspects we may dislike in a particular short, they're unlikely to stick around. Fingers crossed. Next time on episode 6.2, Adventures in SD Land, we research and discuss SD Gundam Mark II, parts 2 and 3, and the updated definitive list of Gundams. Three solid minutes of puns. At last, my time has arrived. A warrior, a thief, and a mage walk into a castle. Gundam Quest. It's a Gundam warrior in the States. You could get lost in those eyes. Fight, item, cast, flee. No one can resist. Cat Camille. Yeah. Anything can be a door if you're motivated. Desert level, ice level, cloud level. More bopin. And transphobia. Oh, come on, SD. You were doing so well this time. This served no purpose, but nevertheless, 
Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music was Olivia by Heisen. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast or by email at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. And thank you for listening. I don't know, Nina. Is it ever going to be safe to share wrong Gundam opinions with the world again? Wrong opinions like SD Gundam Mark II Part 1 The Rolling Colony Affair finally ends the debate about whether Xeon dropped a colony on Sydney or New York because they dropped one colony that rolled over both Sydney and New York? I mean, if people don't share their wrong Gundam opinions, then they'll just keep building up inside until something terrible happens. Better me than the internet. I think that sounds good, but... Yeah, all right. Though, admittedly, that is damning with faint praise. Um, You know, uh, it might be 43 years now. March. <laughs> yep. March test. Lol. And that. And that. Did I send you the link to the Internet Archive version? Uh, maybe, and then I forgot about it, possibly. What do you call an accumulation of wrong opinions? I don't know what. A podcast. <laughs> <laughs>